Book One, Part Three of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book One, A.D. Fourteen and fifteen part three meanwhile there was an outbreak among the chaussi begun by some veterans of the mutinous legions on garrison duty they were quelled for a time by the instant execution of two soldiers such was the order of minius the camp prefect more as a salutary warning than as a legal act then when the commotion increased he fled and having been discovered as his hiding place was now unsafe he borrowed a resource from audacity. It was not, he told them, the camp prefect, it was Germanicus, their general, it was Tiberius, their emperor, whom they were insulting. At the same moment, overawing all resistance, he seized the standard, faced round towards the river bank, and exclaiming that whoever left the ranks he would hold as a deserter, he led them back into their winter quarters, disaffected indeed, but cowed. Meanwhile, envoys from the Senate had an interview with Germanicus, who had now returned, at the altar of the Ubii. Two legions, the first and twentieth, with veterans, discharged and serving under a standard, were there in winter quarters. In the bewilderment of terror and conscious guilt, they were penetrated by an apprehension that persons had come at the Senate's orders to cancel the concessions they had extorted by mutiny and as it is the way with the mob to fix any charge, however groundless, on some particular person, they reproached Manatius Plancus, an ex-consul and the chief envoy, with being the author of the Senate's decree. At midnight they began to demand the imperial standard kept in Germanicus's quarters, and having rushed together to the entrance, burst the door, dragged Caesar from his bed, and forced him by menaces of death to give up the standard. Then, Roaming through the camp streets, they met the envoys, who, on hearing of the tumult, were hastening to Germanicus. They loaded them with insults, and were on the point of murdering them, Plancus especially, whose high rank had deterred him from flight. In his peril he found safety only in the camp of the First Legion. There, clasping the standards and the eagle, he sought to protect himself under their sanctity. And had not the eagle-bearer, Calpurnius, saved him from the worst violence, the blood of an envoy of the Roman people, an occurrence rare even among our foes, would, in a Roman camp, have stained the altars of the gods. At last, with the light of day, when the general and the soldiers and the whole affair were clearly recognized, Germanicus entered the camp, ordered Plancus to be conducted to him, and received him on the tribunal. He then upbraided them with their fatal infatuation, revived not so much by the anger of the soldiers as that of heaven, and explained the reasons of the envoy's arrivals. On the rights of ambassadors, on dreadful and undeserved peril of Plancus, and also on the disgrace into which the legion had brought itself, he dwelt with the eloquence of pity, and while the throng was confounded rather than appeased, he dismissed the envoys with an escort of auxiliary cavalry. Amid the alarm, all condemned Germanicus for not going to the upper army, where he might find obedience and help against the rebels. Enough, and more than enough blunders, they said. 
had been made by granting discharges and money, indeed by conciliatory measures. Even if Germanicus held his own life cheap, why should he keep a little son and a pregnant wife among madmen who outraged every human right? Let these at least be restored safely to their grandsire and to the state. When his wife spurned the notion, protesting that she was a descendant of the divine Augustus, and could face peril with no degenerate spirit, he at last embraced her and the son of their love with many tears, and after long delay compelled her to depart. Slowly moved among a pitiable procession of women, a general's fugitive wife with a little son in her bosom, her friends' wives weeping round her, as with her they were dragging themselves from the camp, not less sorrowful were those who remained. There was no appearance of the triumphant general about Germanicus, and he seemed to be in a conquered city rather than in his own camp, while groans and wailings attracted the ears and looks even of the soldiers. They came out of their tents asking, What was that mournful sound? What meant the sad sight? Here were ladies of rank, not a centurion to escort them, not a soldier, no sign of a prince's wife, none of the usual residue. Could they be going to the trevery to be subjects of the foreigner? Then they felt shame and pity, and remembered his father Agrippa, her grandfather Augustus, her father-in-law Drusus, her own glory as a mother of children, her noble purity. And there was her little child, too, born in the camp, brought up amid the tents of the legions, whom they used to call in soldier's fashion Caligula, because he often wore the shoes so called to win the men's good will. But nothing moved them so much as jealousy towards the trevery. They entreated, stop the way that Agrippina might return and remain, some running to meet her, while most went back to Germanicus. He, with a grief and anger that were yet fresh, began to address the throng around him. Neither wife nor son are dearer to me than my father in the state, but he will surely have the protection of his own majesty, the empire of Rome, that of our other armies, my wife and children whom, were it a question of your glory, I would willingly expose to destruction, I now remove to a distance from your fury, so that whatever wickedness is thereby threatened may be expiated by my blood only, and that you may not be made more guilty by the slaughter of a grandson of Augustus, by the murder of a daughter-in-law of Tiberius. For what have you not dared? What have you not profaned during these days? What name shall I give to this gathering? Am I to call you soldiers? You, who have beset with entrenchments and arms your general son? Or citizens, when you have trampled underfoot the authority of the Senate? Even the rights of public enemies, the sacred character of ambassador, the laws of nations have been violated by you. The divine Julius once quelled an army's mutiny with a single word, by calling those who were renouncing their military obedience, citizens. The divine Augustus cowed the legions who had fought at Actium with one look of his face. Though I am not yet what they were, still, descended as I am from them, it would be a strange and unworthy thing should I be spurned by the soldiery of Spain or Syria. First and twentieth legions, you who received your standards from Tiberius, you men of the twentieth, who have shared with me so many battles, and have been enriched with so many rewards, is not this a fine gratitude with which you are repaying your general? Are these the tidings which I shall have to carry to my father, when he hears only joyful intelligence from our other provinces? That his own recruits, 
his own veterans are not satisfied with discharge or pay, that here only centurions are murdered, tribunes are driven away, envoys imprisoned, camps and rivers stained with blood, while I am myself dragging on a precarious existence amid those who hate me. Why, on the first day of our meeting, why did you, my friends, wrest from me in your blindness the steel with which I was preparing to plunge into my breast? Better and more loving was the act of the man who offered me the sword. At any rate, I should have perished before I was yet conscious of the disgraces of my army, while you would have chosen a general, who, though he might allow my death to pass unpunished, would avenge the death of Varus and his three legions. Never indeed may heaven suffer the Belgae, although they proffer their aid, to have the glory and honor of having rescued the name of Rome and quelled the tribes of Germany. It is thy spirit, divine Augustus, now received into heaven, thine image, Father Drusus, and the remembrance of thee, which, with these same soldiers who are now stimulated by shame and ambition, should wipe out this blot and turn the wrath of civil strife to the destruction of the foe. You too, in whose faces and in whose hearts I perceive a change, if only you restore to the Senate their envoys, to the Emperor his due allegiance, to myself my wife and son, do you stand aloof from pollution and separate the mutinous from among you. This will be a pledge of your repentance, a guarantee of your loyalty. Thereupon, as suppliants, confessing that his reproaches were true, they implored him to punish the guilty, pardon those who had erred, and lead them against the enemy. And he was to recall his wife, to let the nursling of the legions return, and not be handed over as a hostage to the Gauls. As to Agrippina's return, he made the excuse of her approaching confinement and of winter. His son, he said, would come, and the rest they might settle themselves. Away they hurried hither and thither, altered men, and dragged the chief mutineers in change to Gaius Caetronius, commander of the first legion, who tried and punished them one by one in the following fashion. In front of the throng stood the legions with drawn swords. Each accused man was on a raised platform and was pointed out by a tribune. If they shouted out that he was guilty, he was thrown headlong and cut to pieces. The soldiers gloated over the bloodshed, as though it gave them absolution. Nor did Caesar check them, seeing that without any order from himself, the same men were responsible for all the cruelty and all the odium of the deed. The example was followed by the veterans, who were soon afterwards sent into Raetia, nominally nominally to defend the province against a threatened invasion of the Suevi, but really that they may tear themselves from a camp stamped with the horror of a dreadful remedy no less than with the memory of guilt. Then the general revised the list of centurions. Each at his summons stated his name, his rank, his birthplace, the number of his campaigns, what brave deeds he had done in battle, his military rewards, if any. If the tribunes and the legion commended his energy and good behavior, he retained his rank. Where they unanimously charged him with rapacity or cruelty, he was dismissed the service. Quiet, being thus restored for the present, a no less formidable difficulty remained with the turbulence of the 5th and 21st legions, who were in winter quarters, sixty miles away at Old Camp, as the place was called. These, in fact, had been the first to begin the mutiny and the most atrocious deeds had been committed at their hands. Unawed by the punishment of their comrades, and unmoved by their contrition, they still retained their resentment. 
Caesar accordingly proposed to send an armed fleet with some of our allies down the Rhine, resolved to make war on them should they reject his authority. At Rome, meanwhile, when the result of affairs in Illyrium was not yet known, and men had heard of the commotion among the German legions, the citizens in alarm reproached Tiberius for the hypocritical irresolution with which he was befooling the senate and the people, feeble and disarmed as they were, while the soldiery were all the time in revolt, and could not be quelled by the yet imperfectly matured authority of two striplings. He ought to have gone himself, and confronted with his imperial majesty, those who would have soon yielded, when they once saw a sovereign of long experience, who was the supreme dispenser of rigor or of bounty. Could Augustus, with the feebleness of age on him, so often visit Germany? And is Tiberius, in the vigor of life, to sit in the Senate and criticize its members' words? He had taken good care that there should be slavery at Rome. He should now apply some soothing medicine to the spirit of the soldiers, that they might be willing to endure peace. Notwithstanding these remonstrances, it was the inflexible purpose of Tiberius not to quit the headquarters of empire, or to imperil himself and the state. Indeed, many conflicting thoughts troubled him. The army in Germany was the stronger, that in Pannonia the nearer. The first was supported by all the strength of Gaul, the latter menaced Italy. Which was he to prefer, without the fear that those whom he slighted would be infuriated by the affront? But his sons might alike visit both, and not compromise the imperial dignity, which inspired the greatest awe at a distance. There was also an excuse for mere youths, referring some matters to their father, with the possibility that he could conciliate or crush those who resisted Germanicus or Drusus. What resource remained if they despised the emperor? However, as if on the eve of departure, he selected his attendants, provided his camp equipage, and prepared a fleet. Then winter, and matters of business, were the various pretexts with which he amused first sensible men, then the populace, last and longest of all, the provinces. Germanicus, meantime, though he had concentrated his army and prepared vengeance against the mutineers, thought that he ought still to allow them an interval, in case they might, with the late warning before them, regard their safety. He sent a dispatch to Caecina, saying that he was on the way with a strong force, and that, unless they forestalled his arrival by the execution of the guilty, he would resort to an indiscriminate massacre. Caecina read the letter confidentially to the eagle and standard-bearers, and to all in the camp who were least tainted by disloyalty, and urged them to save the whole army from disgrace and themselves from destruction. In peace, he said, the merits of a man's cause are carefully weighed, when war bursts on us, innocent and a guilty alike perish. Upon this they sounded those whom they thought best for their purpose, and when they saw that a majority of their legions remained loyal, at the commander's suggestion they fixed a time for falling with the sword on the vilest and foremost of the mutineers. Then, at a mutually given signal, they rushed into the tents, and butchered the unsuspecting men, none but those in the secret knowing what was the beginning or what may be the end of the slaughter. The scene was a contrast to all civil wars which have ever occurred. It was not in battle. It was not from opposing camps. It was from those same dwellings where day saw them at their common meals, night resting from labor, that they divided themselves into two factions, 
and showered on each other their missiles. Uproar, wounds, bloodshed were everywhere visible. The cause was a mystery. All else was at the disposal of chance. Even some loyal men were slain, for, on its being once understood, who were the objects of fury, some of the worst mutineers, too, had seized on weapons. Neither commander nor tribune was present to control them. The men were allowed license and vengeance to their heart's content. Soon afterwards, Germanicus entered the camp, exclaiming with a flood of tears that this was destruction rather than remedy, ordered the bodies to be burnt. Even then their savage spirit was seized with desire to march against the enemy, as an atonement for their frenzy, and it was felt that the shades of their fellow soldiers could be appeased only by exposing such impious breasts to honorable scars. Caesar followed up the enthusiasm of the men, and having bridged over the Rhine, he sent across it twelve thousand from the legions, with six and twenty allied cohorts, and eight squadrons of cavalry, whose discipline had been without a stain during the mutiny. There was exultation among the Germans, not far off, as long as we were detained by the public mourning for the loss of Augustus, and then by our dissensions. But the Roman general, in a forced march, cut through the Caesian forest, and the barrier which had been begun by Tiberius, and pitched his camp on this barrier, his front and rear being defended by entrenchments, his flanks by timber barricades. He then penetrated some forest passes but little known, and, as there were two routes, he deliberated whether he should pursue the short and ordinary route, or that which was more difficult unexplored, and consequently unguarded by the enemy. He chose the longer way, and hurried on every remaining preparation, for his scouts had brought word that among the Germans it was a night of festivity, with games, and one of their grand banquets. Caecina had orders to advance with some light cohorts, and to clear away any obstructions from the woods. The legions followed at a moderate interval. They were helped by a night of bright starlight, reached the villages of the Marsi, and threw their pickets round the enemy, who even then were stretched on beds or at their tables, without the least fear or any sentries before their camp. So complete was their carelessness and disorder, and of war, indeed, there was no apprehension. Peace it certainly was not, merely the languid and heedless ease of half-intoxicated people. Caesar, to spread devastation widely, divided his eager legions into four columns, and ravaged a space of fifty miles with fire and sword. Neither sex nor age moved his compassion. Everything, sacred or profane, the temple too of Tamphana, as they called it, the special resort of all those tribes, was leveled to the ground. There was not a wound among our soldiers who cut down a half-asleep, or unarmed, or a straggling foe. The Bructeri, Tubantes, and Usapetes were roused by this slaughter, and they beset the forest passes through which our army had to return. The general knew this, and he marched, prepared both to advance and to fight. Part of the cavalry and some of the auxiliary cohorts led the van. Then came the first legion, and with the baggage in the center, the men of the twenty-first closed up the left, those of the fifth the right flank. The twentieth legion secured the rear, and next were the rest of the allies. Meanwhile the enemy moved not, till the army began to defile in column through the woods, then made some slight skirmishing attacks on its flanks and van, and with his whole force charged the rear. The light cohorts were thrown into confusion by the dense masses of the Germans, 
when Caesar rode up to the men of the twentieth legion, and in a loud voice exclaimed that this was the time for wiping out the mutiny. Advance, he said, and hasten to turn your guilt into glory. This fired their courage, and at a single dash they broke through the enemy, and drove him back with great slaughter into the open country. At the same moment the troops of the van emerged from the woods and entrenched a camp. After this their march was uninterrupted, and the soldiery, with the confidence of recent successes, and forgetful of the past, were placed in winter quarters. The news was a source of joy and also of anxiety to Tiberius. He rejoiced that the mutiny was crushed, but the fact that Germanicus had won the soldiers' favor by lavishing money and promptly granting the discharge, as well as his fame as a soldier, annoyed him. Still, he brought his achievements under the notice of the Senate, and spoke much of his greatness in language elaborated for effect, more so than can be believed to come from his inmost heart. He bestowed a briefer praise on Drusus, and on the termination of the disturbance in Illyricum, but he was more earnest and his speech more hearty, and he confirmed, too, in the armies of Pannonia, all the concessions of Germanicus. That same year, Julia ended her days. For her profligacy, she had formerly been confined by her father Augustus in the island of Pendatria, and then in the town of the Regni, on the shores of the Straits of Sicily. She had been the wife of Tiberius, while Gaius and Lucius Caesar were in their glory, and had disdained him as an unequal match. This was Tiberius's special reason for retiring to Rhodes. When he obtained the empire, he left her in banishment and disgrace, deprived of all hope after the murder of Posthumus Agrippa, and let her perish by a lingering death of destitution, with the idea that an obscurity would hang over her head from the length of her exile. He had a like motive for cruel vengeance on Sempronius Gracchus, a man of noble family, of shrewd understanding, and of perverse eloquence who had seduced this same Julia when she was the wife of Marcus Agrippa. And this was not the end of the intrigue. When she had been handed over to Tiberius, her persistent paramour inflamed her with disobedience and hatred towards her husband. And a letter which Julia wrote to her father, Augustus, inveighed against Tiberius, was supposed to be the composition of Gracchus. He was, accordingly, banished to Curcina, where he endured an exile of fourteen years, then the soldiers who were sent to slay him found him on a promontory, expecting no good. On their arrival he begged a brief interval, in which to give by letter his last instructions to his wife, Aliaria, and then offered his neck to the executioners, dying with a courage not unworthy of the Sempronian name, which his degenerate life had dishonored. Some have related that these soldiers were not sent from Rome, but from Lucius Asparanus, proconsul of Africa on the authority of Tiberius, who had vainly hoped that the infamy of the murder might be shifted on Asperanus. The same year witnessed the establishment of religious ceremonies in a new priesthood of the Brotherhood of the Augustales, just as in former days Titus Tatius, to retain the rights of the Sabines, had instituted the Titian Brotherhood. Twenty-one were chosen by lot from the chief men of the state, Tiberius, Drusus, Claudius, and Germanicus were added to their number. The Augustal games, which were then inaugurated, were disturbed by quarrels arising out of rivalry between the actors. 
Augustus had shown indulgence to the entertainment by way of humoring Mycanus's extravagant passion for Bathylus. Nor did he himself dislike such amusements, and he thought it citizen-like to mingle in the pleasures of the populace. Very different was the tendency of Tiberius's character, but a people of so many years indulgently treated, he did not yet venture to put under harsher control. In the consulship of Drusus Caesar and Gaius Norbanus, Germanicus had a triumph decreed him, though war still lasted, and though it was for the summer campaign that he was most vigorously preparing, he anticipated it by a sudden inroad of the Chatti in the beginning of spring. There had, in fact, sprung up a hope of the enemy, being divided between Arminius and Segestes, famous respectively for treachery and loyalty towards us. Arminius was the disturber of Germany. Segestes often revealed the fact that a rebellion was being organized, more especially at that last banquet, after which they rushed to arms, and he urged Varus to arrest himself and Arminius, and all the other chiefs, assuring him that the people would attempt nothing if the leading men were removed, and that he would then have an opportunity of sifting accusations and distinguishing the innocent. But Varus fell by fate, and by the sword of Arminius, with whom Segestes, though dragged into war by the unanimous voice of the nation, continued to be at feud, his resentment being heightened by personal motives, as Arminius had married his daughter, who was betrothed to another. With his son-in-law detested, and fathers-in-law also in enmity, what are the bounds of love between united hearts became, with bitter foes, incentives to fury. Germanicus accordingly gave Caecina four legions, five thousand auxiliaries, with some hastily raised levies from the Germans dwelling on the left bank of the Rhine. He was himself at the head of an equal number of legions, and twice as many allies, having established a fort on the site of his father's entrenchments on Mount Taunus, he hurried his troops in quick marching order against the Chatti, leaving Lucius Apronius to direct works connected with roads and bridges. With a dry season and comparatively shallow streams, a rare occurrence in that climate, he had accomplished without obstruction rapid march, and he feared for his return heavy rains and swollen rivers. But so suddenly did he come on the Chatti, that all the helpless from age or sex were at once captured or slaughtered. Their able-bodied men had swum across the river Adrana, and were trying to keep back the Romans as they were commencing a bridge. Subsequently they were driven back by missiles and arrows, and having in vain attempted for peace, some took refuge with Germanicus, while the rest, leaving their cantons and villages, dispersed themselves in their forest. After burning Matium, the capital of the tribe, and ravaging the open country, Germanicus marched back towards the Rhine, the enemy not daring to harass the rear of the retiring army, which was his usual practice whenever he fell back by way of stratagem rather than from panic. It had been the intention of the Cheruski to help the Chatti, but Caecina thoroughly cowed them, carrying his arms everywhere, and the Marci, who ventured to engage him, he repulsed in a successful battle. Not long after, envoys came from Segestes, imploring aid against the violence of his fellow countrymen, by whom he was hemmed in, and with whom Arminius had greater influence, because he consoled war. For with barbarians, the more eager a man's daring, the more does he inspire confidence, and the more highly is he esteemed in times of revolution. 
With the envoys, Segestes had associated his son, by name Sigimundus, but the youth hung back from a conscientious of guilt, for in the year of the revolt of Germany he had been appointed a priest at the altar of the Ubii, and had rent the sacred garlands and fled to the rebels. Induced, however, to hope for mercy from Rome, he brought his father's message. He was graciously received and sent with an escort to the Gallic bank of the Rhine. It was now worth while for Germanicus to march back his army. A battle was fought against the besiegers, and Segestes was rescued with a numerous band of kinsfolk and dependents. In the number were some women of rank, among them the wife of Arminius, who was also the daughter of Segestes, but who exhibited the spirit of her husband rather than of her father, subdued neither to tears nor to the tones of a suppliant, her hands tightly clasped within her bosom, and eyes which dwelt on her hope of offspring. The spoils also taken in the defeat of Varus were brought in, having been given as plunder to many of those who were then being surrendered. Segestes, too, was there in person, a stately figure, fearless in the remembrance of having been a faithful ally. His speech was to this effect. This is not my first day of steadfast loyalty towards the Roman people. From the time that the divine Augustus gave me the citizenship, I have chosen my friends and foes with an eye to your advantage, not from hatred of my fatherland, for traitors are detested, even by those whom they prefer, but because I held that Romans and Germans have the same interests, and that peace is better than war. And therefore I denounce to Varus, who then commanded your army, Arminius, the ravisher of my daughter, the violator of your treaty. I was put off by that dilatory general, and, as I found but little protection in the laws, I urged him to arrest myself, Arminius, and his accomplices. That night is my witness. Would that it had been my last. What followed may be deplored rather than defended. However, I threw Arminius into chains, and I endured to have them put on myself by his partisans, and as soon as given opportunity, I showed my preference for the old over the new, for peace for over commotion, not to get a reward, but that I might clear myself from treachery, and be at the same time a fit mediator for the German people, should they choose repentance rather than ruin. For the youth and error of my son, I entreat forgiveness. As for my daughter, I admit that it is by compulsion that she has been brought here, it will be for you to consider which fact weighs most with you, that she is with child by Arminius, or that she owes her being to me. Caesar, in a gracious reply, promised safety to his children and kinsfolk, and a home for himself in the old province. He then led back the army, and received on the proposal of Tiberius the title of Imperator. The wife of Arminius gave birth to a male child. The boy who was brought up at Ravenna, soon afterwards suffered an insult, which at the proper time I shall relate. The report of the surrender and kind reception of Segestes, when generally known, was heard with hope or grief according as men shrank from war or desired it. Arminius, with his naturally furious temper, was driven to frenzy by the seizure of his wife and the foredooming to slavery of his wife's unborn child. He flew hither and thither among the Cherusci, demanding, War against Segestes, war against Caesar. And he refrained not from taunts. Noble the father, he would say, mighty the general, brave the army which, with such strength, has carried off one weak woman. 
Before me, three legions, three commanders have fallen, not by treachery, not against pregnant women, but openly against armed men do I wage war. There are still to be seen in the groves of Germany the Roman standards, which I hung up to our country's gods. Let Segestes dwell on the conquered bank. Let him restore to his son his priestly office. One thing there is which Germans will never thoroughly excuse. Their having seen between the Elba and the Rhine the Roman rods, axes, and toga. Other nations, in their ignorance of Roman rule, have no experience of punishments, know nothing of tributes, and, as we have shaken them off, as the great Augustus, ranked among deities, and his chosen heir, Tiberius, departed from us, baffled, let us not quail before an inexperienced tripling, before a mutinous army. If you prefer your fatherland, your ancestors, your ancient life, to tyrants and to new colonies, follow as your leader Arminius to glory and to freedom, rather than Segestes to ignominious servitude. This language roused not only the Cherusci, but the neighboring tribes, and drew to their side Inguiomerus, the uncle of Arminius, who had long been respected by the Romans. This increased Caesar's alarm, that the war might not burst in all its fury at one point. He sent Caecina through the Bructory to the river Amicia with forty Roman cohorts to distract the enemy, while the cavalry was led by its commander, Pedo, through the territories of the Frisii. Germanicus himself put four legions on shipboard and conveyed them through the lakes, and the infantry, cavalry, and fleets met simultaneously at the river already mentioned. The Chauci, on promising aid, were associated with us in military fellowship. Lucius Sturtinius was dispatched by Germanicus with a flying column and routed the Bructeri as they were burning their possessions, and, amid the carnage and plunder, found the eagle of the 19th legion, which had been lost with Varus. The troops were then marched to the furthest frontier of the Bructeri, and all the country between the rivers Amicia and Lupia was ravaged, not far from the forest of Tetoburgium, where the remains of Varus and his legions were said to lie unburied. Germanicus, upon this, was seized with an eager longing to pay the last honor to those soldiers and their general, while the whole army present was moved to compassion by the thought of their kinsfolk and friends, and indeed of the calamities of wars and the lot of mankind. Having sent on Caecina in advance to reconnoitre the obscure forest passes, and to raise bridges and causeways over watery swamps and treacherous plains, they visited the mournful scenes, with their horrible sights and associations. Varus's first camp, with its wide circumference, and the measurements of its central space clearly indicated the handiwork of three legions. Further on, the partially fallen rampart and the shallow fosse suggested the inference that it was a shattered remnant of the army, which had there taken up a position. In the center of the field were the whitening bones of man, as they had fled, or stood their ground, strewn everywhere, or piled in heaps. Near lay fragments of weapons and limbs of horses, and also human heads, prominently nailed to trunks of trees. In the adjacent groves were the barbarous altars, on which they had emulated tribunes and first-rank centurions. Some survivors of the disaster, who had escaped from the battle or from captivity, described how this was the spot where the officers fell, how yonder the eagles were captured, where Varus, 
was pierced by his first wound, whereto by the stroke of his own ill-starred hand he found for himself death. They pointed out too the raised ground from which Arminius had harangued his army, the number of gibbets for the captives, the pits for the living, and how, in his exaltation, he insulted the standards and eagles. End of Book One, Part Three